0: following sermon audio is from love city church cincinnati more audio and information about love city church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org please turn with me if you would to hebrews chapter 8 continuing in our series through the book of hebrews uh last week we finished up Hebrews chapter 7, which deals with the idea of Jesus being the only perfect and permanent high priest. And we also saw how how Jesus could be high priest, even though he's not descended from Aaron, right? Which would be a problem if you didn't understand that his priesthood is by the order of Melchizedek. And so we, both in the first half and second half of Hebrews 7, we, we dealt with that at length. If you weren't around for that, I'd really encourage you uh, to, to go back because this this book is is very it's a very logical succession leading us to this end summary of the superiority of Christ, his worth uh, to be worshipped above all else, and also the the supremacy of the new covenant uh, over the old covenant and so that's some of what we're going to get into today. The The discussion of Christ's position as our perfect and permanent high priest, it's almost inextricably linked to a discussion of the covenant that his priesthood presides over. It's very hard not to talk about both at the same time, and I, I struggled with that last week, knowing that chapter 8 was going to bring us smack dab into the center of a discussion on, on this new covenant. And so, We have touched this idea throughout the study of Hebrews so far, but here in chapter 8, this idea is going to take center stage. And so that's what we're going to be working on today. Uh, You'll notice that about half of this chapter is a quotation of the Hebrew Scriptures, which is another name for the Old Testament. Uh, And this quotation that we're going to see here, it's from the book of Jeremiah. And it's inclusion in the author's argument here. It has two two main purposes, maybe more than that, but two main purposes. The first of this quotation from Jeremiah is to keep presenting the idea that the new covenant, it doesn't just pop up with no warning uh, once Jesus started his public ministry. Part of the argument this this author of Hebrews is making, and, and it was kind of some of this as well in the discussion of Melchizedek, is like, guys, we should have been looking for this. We should have been looking for a new and better high priest. We should have been looking for a new and better covenant. We shouldn't be surprised that this is what God is doing, because in many ways, he has tipped his hand and shown us that this was his intention. And this quotation from the prophet Jeremiah is, is maybe one of the clearest, and so that's part of what he's doing. It's like, guys, this isn't something that just, you know, Jesus, Jesus uh, comes on the scene, and then him and his disciples just kind of made all this stuff up and, and, and it's this brand new idea we, we never have seen before. It's not really the truth. It's This thing is at the very least foreshadowed, if not explicitly set um, in the Old Testament leading up to the New. Okay, So the second main purpose of this quotation is to lay out some of how this new covenant and its promises are far better than the one before it. And so some of that will be spelled out as uh, we we read this quotation from Jeremiah in Hebrews 8, okay? So I hope you got there, Hebrews chapter 8. um, We we should have the verses on the screens if you don't have a Bible with you. Uh, And if for some reason you don't own a Bible, we'd be really happy to give you one. Let us know, and we'll take care of that after the service, okay? So Hebrews 8, we're going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. It's 13 verses. Just a little shorty here, okay? All right, here we go. Now, the main point in what has been said is this We have such a high priest. I'm really thankful for the writer because this can be a hard thing to track, these first seven chapters. There's a lot going on. So he boils it down for us. Here's the main point We have such a high priest. And, And all of what he was talking about before was Jesus the need for this greater high priest in the order of Melchizedek and that Jesus is him, okay? So that's, that's been my point so far. We have that high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Okay, That's a reference to Moses being on Mount Sinai and God giving him the instructions of how the tabernacle was to be built. Verse 6, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And when he said a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready To disappear. Praise God for his word. That's Hebrews chapter 8. So I hope you're ready to get cracking here. Uh, We're going to, as we normally do, move back to verse 1 and and work our way through this verse by verse. So, uh, verse 1 this main point uh, in what has been said is this We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens interesting thing to note here is that it says this high priest has taken his seat now if you which we're going to in just a bit because the the next set of verses leads us to it if you take a look at the furnishings of the tabernacle there were seven things mentioned none of them was a chair there was not a chair in there There was the mercy seat that's really the the lid of the ark and and people weren't sitting on it and it wasn't its purpose there was no chair in the tabernacle and yet we see this idea of Jesus being this high priest who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high that that uh, saying the majesty on high that was one of the ways that people in that time would have referred to God there was out of reverence, they didn't like to say his name, and so the majesty is a reference to God. So Christ, this high priest, is sitting at the right hand of God, the majesty, on high. And so what we see here, why was there no chairs in the tabernacle? Well, because the what, chairs are for sitting and resting, and you sit and rest when what? The work is done, and the work was never done in the tabernacle. There was, there was no place or need for them to sit because they were always coming in there with a job to do, offering sacrifices for the people, and that was going to be perpetual and continual. God didn't want them sitting in there. there, was, there you shouldn't be resting because the, the occupation for which they were brought into the tabernacle was never going to be finished. But you see a stark contrast in the fact that Jesus is seated next to the majesty on high. Do you hear the echo from that of Jesus' words on the cross? It is finished. It is finished. Because Jesus offered the once-for-all sacrifice that those animal sacrifices were always pointing forward to. Jesus can sit because the job is done. There will never have to be another heifer, goat, or any other animal sacrificed and its blood sprinkled for the remission and the atonement of sins. Jesus was the, always the sacrifice that all of those were pointing forward to. The fact that Jesus sits on the right hand, this is also something, you know, most of you have not been in a king's court, probably, but that was the the place of highest designation and honor. If you were sitting to the right of the king, then everyone knew you were an important pumbaa, and uh, they they should give you respect. And so this in and of itself is also, uh, says something about the priesthood of Jesus, his position in the heavenlies. Honestly, it should just be another thing that leads us to worshiping him. Uh, he's, he's seated, he's exalted, and uh, that is really the, the main point that we're supposed to catch out of that. I think that the fact that he's sitting, could we could miss it, though, if, if we didn't stop and think about what that really communicates. Um, if he was standing next to God, it, it, would, it wouldn't have the same uh, force as the fact that uh, by him sitting, there's a communication that the, the job is done. It is finished. Now, in verses 2 through 5... It says a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Okay, so now we're getting led to this idea that Jesus is a high priest who is—he's presiding over this covenant in a in a place in a tabernacle pitched by God, not by man. Okay, and so this this is. When, when God had Moses up on the mountain, was giving him the details of what was the tabernacle was going to look like, what materials were going to be used, very precise dimensions, all of this was, was meant to be a reflection of something that already existed in the heavenlies. Now, that is not to say that when we enter the throne room of God on that great and glorious day, there is anything necessarily like the tent. I don't think that's really what it means, but what it means is, in the throne room of God, and in some of the principles that some of these things represent, um, th- th- this tabernacle was meant to reflect this ultimate, eternal, heavenly reality. That's really what's supposed to be drawn out of this, um, which will become more clear, I think, as we move through. So it says, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Okay, the difference here being the the priests during the time of the tabernacle and even the time of the temple were offering uh, animals as sacrifices, as temporary sacrifices. Jesus, as a high priest, did have something to offer. It was himself, and and this changes the very nature of our understanding of sacrifice as well. Because during the time of the tabernacle and the temple, uh, what what was the whole sacrifice about? And I'm Pastor Andrew. I'm gonna try to stay off. I'm try to stay off your stuff, brother, Pastor. I'm in Mexico next Sunday, so Pastor Andrews going to be teaching. And, and he already scolded me from last week because I was dancing all around his, his sermon too much. So I'm going to try to stay off of it, brother, out of, out of respect. But what, 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 just one thing we want to draw out here is that basically, I, I heard this line, there's a, a Christian rapper named Bizzle, and I can't think of a better way to say this than the way he said it. He said, if death is your work, or sorry, if sin is your work, then death is the check. Ooh, that got me. I don't know about, I mean, y'all can sit there however you want. I'm, I got goosebumps again saying that because that's, woo, that's the point, right? The wages of sin is death. That's what he's saying. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so part of what that sacrificial system was was constantly reminding people of was that the wages of sin is death. When you came up to the tabernacle, what the priest was helping you do was, was basically we're, we're going to, we know this animal is going to take the punishment I should have got. My sin deserves Death. And so something was going to die in order to pay for the sins. What's, what's incredible about what Jesus has done, how, how can, so if, has that principle changed that the wages of sin is death? It hasn't. And Jesus did die. He died once for all for the sin of the entire world. But what's interesting is, he didn't stay dead. And so the nature of sacrifice as we follow Christ has now changed. God is not calling us to come and offer either an animal or ourself in the way Christ did. We don't have to be offered as an atoning sacrifice. We don't need to die to pay for our sin. Christ did that. But now what Christ does is sits in the heavenlies, sits in the heavenlies as what? A living sacrifice, perpetually forever. His very presence there at the right hand, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, is a continual reminder to God and to everybody that atonement has been made. Jesus now can be a sacrifice perpetually forever. He doesn't need to die again. It's all been done. It's all been finished. And that's how, again, we talked about this some last week. This is why Romans calls us to live as sacri- to be living sacrifices. We're again we're just doing what our master has done. We're just following in the footsteps of Jesus who is today a living sacrifice. We don't need to go through this whole drama again because he is eternal. He has defeated death and he sits there next to the majesty, right hand of the majesty on high forever and no one's ever going to unseat him. No one's ever going to change the finality of what has happened in the atoning work of Christ. He can sit forever as a living sacrifice and then we can come behind. I'm so thankful that what God has called me to is not to lay myself on an altar in the way the bulls and goats had to or to have my have me up on a cross the way Christ had to. That that because ultimately if things were just going to be done strictly and legally and we didn't understand that God had this incredible master plan of pouring grace out upon us through faith and, and counting faith as righteousness to his people, if God didn't have that plan, then the only way my sin could have ever been dealt with would have been for me to end up on a cross or an altar. But because of Christ and because of what God has done by grace through faith in him, I get to be a living sacrifice. God help me to do it. Amen. And so what we see here in verse so that's verse three. Verse five, now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. So again, what he's saying, so if Jesus, if Jesus wasn't at the right hand of the majesty on high performing this duty of the, of the perpetual perfect high priest, the only one we're ever gonna need, if he was down on earth trying to do the job at the time this was written, they're saying he wouldn't even let him. Again, because, and we went through all this last week because Jesus of the tribe of Judah, not of the tribe of Aaron. So he wouldn't have even qualified for that earthly priestly, uh, the the duties and and the the position of a priest at all, much less the high priest. And something that's interesting to to note out of that, uh, it says, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Uh, I don't have time to go into great detail about why it's important that we know this, but that's, that verse right there is really great evidence that this book, the book of Hebrews, this letter to the Hebrew Christians was written before 70 AD because the way the author talks about it is if the, the priests are, are still offering sacrifices in the temple. And what's interesting about that is the Romans came in in 70 AD and sacked Jerusalem, tore the temple down, stole all the furnishings, you know, and uh, I I know there's there's probably stuff on the Discovery Channel, whatever else. I've I've seen some of it, you know, they think the Ark of the Covenant's in some Mayan temple or whatever, you know, people are still looking for these furnishings, right? Um, Personally, I don't think they're ever going to find them. I think God made sure they were gone uh, because he was (laughs) making a clear statement that uh, there was no more need for those temple sacrifices because now uh, what was being accomplished there in a temporary way is accomplished uh, permanently and forever through Christ uh, in the heavenly tabernacle and so the heavenly temple okay so uh part of what that can help us do is date this book because honestly God's so smart you know there's so much there's so much in the book of Hebrews that is helpful and instructive for us as followers of Christ but had had this writer not written this before 70 AD I'm not sure he would have uh because once the temple was destroyed I mean how much of this argumentation is about guys don't don't go back to this inferior, Old Testament sacrificial system, you know. But honestly, there was no there was no option for anybody to do that after 70 A.D. Once the temple was destroyed, once the furnishings were gone, none you couldn't do the Levitical priesthood couldn't do their job. They, none of it could be done the way it was commanded in the law of Moses. And so, I, somebody may you know this writer may not even thought there was a need to to write much of what he wrote here uh, had it been post 70 A.D. But God, in His great wisdom. Uh, had this letter be written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and thus we have its content to help us today. Amen. Uh, so, verse 5, who serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Okay? Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, it says, For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. So, as I said, there were very specific um, dimensions and, and specificities around the materials to be used in all of not only the construction of the tent itself, its outer courts, the gate by which you entered it, but also the furnishings. And so there are there is far more that could be said. Books have been written on just about what I'm going to try to summarize for you right now. But what I want you to see is the significance uh, and the intentionality of God in even something that might seem so mundane as the furnishings of the tabernacle. Each thing, and the great specific details God gave, all of that had a purpose. And again, this is, for those of you that maybe know something about this, you're like, oh man, but you forgot to say, I know there's more, okay? I'm going to give a 10,000 mile view of this real quick, just so maybe, maybe wet the appetite of of people to to look closer. So what is it talking about? It's talking, you know, he's saying, they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. These heavenly things being um, eternal realities and, and how much of, of that tabernacle, again, back to the point of why, we're, why I'm saying this author included the back half of this chapter, all this giant quotation from the book of Jeremiah, uh, the largest, I think, quotation straight of, from the Hebrew scriptures in all of the New Testament. I believe that's true. Uh, in any case, it's one of the biggest, if it isn't the biggest, What's the point of all that? To show us that Jesus coming, the the inauguration of this new covenant, all that God has done in Christ, it shouldn't have been, people shouldn't have been maybe as shocked as they were, (laughs) and maybe today even sometimes are, that this was coming. There were so many things that pointed to the fact that what God did with the people of Israel in the desert through the Mosaic Covenant, that that was not the end of the story, that that was not the final iteration of how God was going to relate to people, right? It was something that God did for a very specific purpose at a very specific time. He pulled a people out unto himself to accomplish his overall redemptive plan, which was going to include everyone who would come to Faith in Christ. The Gentiles, thankfully, because I don't think I have a drop of uh, Jewish blood in me. Thankfully, I'm in as well, and, and probably many of you are, uh, because God, God's plan was always bigger than just taking the, 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 doing something with the people of Israel. The people of Israel were a part of a much larger plan, the New Covenant. Okay. So, what? But what were what? Did, how's, how did some of these furnishings point to greater realities? Okay. Uh, So moving from the outside in, right, because there were several divisions within the the tabernacle, the kind of final one being the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant sat, the mercy seat being the lid of that covered in in gold, Um, and that's where blood would have been sprinkled one time a year by the high priest for the atonement of the sins of the people. But working, so that was kind of the, that's, you know, the final boss all the way in there, the Holy of Holies, but we're going to work our way out in okay, so the first thing you would encounter if you were walking into the tabernacle would be the bronze altar of burnt offering, a bronze altar of burnt offering, and um, some would say that bronze being a less precious metal typified man and their sin. As you get further in, there's more gold, kind of signifying the, the divinity of, of of God, and I would say also Christ. But the first thing you're going to come up to is this bronze altar of burnt offering. What does that tell you? That we, that automatically is screaming the message that we have a problem. You, you can't go into where the presence of God is in that holy of holies until first some kind of offering is offered. Sin has to be atoned for before you can come in. Okay, So that's why first you're coming to this bronze altar. And it had horns, and there's, all, there's even more detail I could get into, but again, I'm just, I'm just trying to give you a very <clears throat> light summary of these things. And so the second thing you would come to, was called a laver. It's basically, it's a bowl of water. This is where cleansing, the, the priest would have to cleanse, wash their hands and wash their feet from this bowl. Interestingly, this bowl was made, it was hammered out of the very highly polished brass mirrors. Uh, which So coming into it, you're, you're, you're going to be able to probably see your reflection in it. Again, a, a reminder that uh, you you are not perfect before God, and then as you're looking at reflection, you're, you're pulling this water out of this to, in another way, cleanse yourself ritually before you can think about moving closer to the presence of God. And again, I alluded to this last week, one of the major facets and differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant was, you know, think about think about what God said when when Mount Sinai was happening, right? Basically, build dividers and tell the people, don't come up here. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to break out against them. Much of what the old covenant was about was saying, there is a problem. There is a division. There is a distance. Sin has created a problem between us. maybe the primary message of the old covenant. In the new covenant, we see almost the exact opposite. We see that because of Christ, you are now called and invited to come near. But you're not you're not coming into the tabernacle without the, passing by this bronze altar of burnt offering. The sacrifice is going to have to be made to come close to God. You're going to need to cleanse yourself through these ritual washings to come close to God. And then, then you had what, uh, what's known as the table of showbread. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. It, it's a reminder of the sustenance that God provided for them and also their continued need uh, for sustenance by him and so the table of showbread now did the did the people in the time of the tabernacle understand perfectly what that was pointing forward to no but once Jesus showed up and started to explain how all of the old testament was pointing to him it should have been pretty clear there was also a golden lampstand this was beat out of a, a a single piece of gold and it was it was the only light source there and It was really what it was was kind of a motif of a a tree, and so it was meant to represent the the tree of life, but also it was the the single light source in the the tabernacle. And so there you see this joining together of both the ideas of life and light. Anybody know who that's pointing to? I mean, come on, right? Jesus, I'm the light of the world. Jesus, the one by which any anyone that's going to taste eternal life, he's the one they're going to have to come through. Then there was also this altar of incense and there was a very specific mixture that could be used to burn incense there but could not be used anywhere else if you're found using it elsewhere it was not going to be good for you and this represented the the prayers of people uh, going up to God and uh, again this is this is something uh, <clears throat> we're still we're still being shown this idea that uh, you, you don't have you don't have direct unrestricted access there's all these things kind of between you and, and the total unrestricted presence of God. As you move past the altar of incense, we have then the, in the Holy of Holies, you've got now the, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the tablets with the Ten Commandments, and Aaron's rod that budded, a uh, golden jar of manna. But this Ark of the Covenant is the place where God said his presence would be. Uh, and, and the lid of that is known as the mercy seat, completely covered in gold and so there's there's all of this ritual there's all of these things and and there's there was veils and curtains that separated these sections each one of every time you had to pass through a curtain it would communicate to you there's there's distance there are divisions between you and God you do not have the right to come before a holy God without all of these ritual sacrifice and washings and and the offering of prayers in a certain way and so much of while, while at the same time, all the furnishings of the tabernacle were expressing the idea of where they stood during the inauguration of the old covenant. In every every one of them, in their own way, was pointing forward to the fulfillment of those things in the new, and that Jesus was going to become the lampstand. He was going to be the living water by which we were purified. He was going to replace the need for this altar of burnt offering. And so, Jesus is the fulfillment of every piece of that tabernacle and all of its furnishings. All of it was pointing forward to him, uh, which can make your reading of the end of Exodus and some of Leviticus much more interesting uh, if you understand those principles. Uh, it's, it's really quite precious. So that will lead us to uh, verse 7. And, and That's going to then bring us into this quotation from the prophet Jeremiah. It says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Um, This idea is is a logical one. It's pretty basic practicality. For some of us, it could be confusing because I know we live in a world where uh, because consumerism is a thing and the way our economy works, we're always being offered something new and improved. So for some of us, we may be confused because like, well, I've bought lots of things that said it was new and improved and then I got it and it was like, mm, it's basically the same, right? It's like the new iPhone every year. It's got a half megapixel better camera and this and such and then you actually get the thing in your hand and you're like, okay, my my iPhone 11 was just fine. This 13 Max Pro, you know, that looks like you're holding this up to your face, is not actually that much better. Uh, so not to pick on Apple, everybody does it, right? You're You're... The toilet bowl cleaner in your house is new and improved. Oh, we did something different with it. Well, really? I mean, because it's kind of doing the same thing it always did. Um, Still got to scrub. So anyways, uh, the point there being God isn't like that. God isn't just throwing out new and improved stuff just because or because he's trying to sell you something. God does stuff intentionally and on purpose. So if this new covenant we're going to hear talked about in this quotation from Jeremiah it's not that God's just doing stuff just because. If, if there wasn't a need for a new covenant, if there wasn't a need for really the, the fulfillment of all the old was pointing to, then God wouldn't have done it. It's kind of a simple, almost circular premise, but needed to be said. For finding fault with them, he says, very important thing for us to think about before we bust into the contents of this uh, Quotation from Jeremiah, this forward looking prophecy, finding fault with them, he says. Okay. Sometimes, and I've really tried hard to not let this become uh, prominent as we've worked through the book of Hebrews, because there's points where the author will say things like uh, these former things were useless. And uh, it can see, you know, he's attacking, it seems like attacking Moses almost, or attacking the Old Testament prophets. And what we have to remember, what's super important to remember, what it said here is because he, he found fault with them, he found fault with the people, the, the new co- or the old covenant was not bad. God established the old covenant. The old covenant had a purpose in a time and it was exactly what we needed when he did it. The old Testament prophets were not bad. Jesus is just better. Moses was not bad. He was called for such a time as, as the, the time God called him, but Jesus is better. Moses was was the mediator of the old covenant because God said so, and so it was good, but it wasn't the final iteration of the whole thing. Jesus was going to be the perfect and permanent mediator that we were always going to need. I mean, could you imagine if we were still in a situation where the, the, the mediation job was passing down from generation to generation, if Jesus wasn't the mediator of the covenant, if we didn't have all of the security it comes in Jesus, the perfect one, being seated at the right hand of the Father. But we were still dealing with some kind of person that we had to trust was going to be doing the job right of mediating between us and God, some person besides the perfect Son of God. Man, we I, that, we'd be on a lot shakier ground. And because we've never have to live that, the first time you ever heard the gospel, you heard Jesus is the high priest. You heard maybe, maybe you didn't get into all that, but once by the time you ever understood a need for a high priest sitting in this place in history, it's, it, to us, it's always been Christ. There's never been a concern that he's going to fail in character, or he's going to get sick and can't do the job, or, or we've never had to worry that, man, what if, what if some invading army comes in and steals our tabernacle, or sacks our temple, then how will, we, how will we worship God? We've never had to live like that. So we can take for granted where we stand, but we shouldn't. We should understand the way our forefathers lived, the way it looked in their covenant, and understand, man, we, we are standing in a place of extreme privilege that we do not have these concerns. We have a perfect and permanent high priest. He's never moving out of that right-hand seat next to the majesty on high. He's never going to fail in the performance of his duties as the mediator of our covenant. Uh, he will be that living sacrifice forever. We, we, we have a whole lot... Uh, uh, when it comes down to what really actually matters in all of the world and in all of eternity, we've got, we've got a level of stability that, man, when the Bible talks about peace that surpasses understanding, when the Bible talks about fearing not, uh, it should be a lot easier for us to fear not than it was for Moses and Caleb and Joshua and, and Samuel and David and all the rest. We, we are a blessed people. But the point in verse 8 is that he found fault with them. The issue was not the covenant. It wasn't the terms of the covenant. Though it had a time and a purpose and a place, it was perfect for the time God instituted it. The issue with the covenant, why did the old covenant not work? Was it because the covenant was bad? Was it because the terms were bad? Was it because the promises were bad? It wasn't. It's because the people were bad. He found fault with them. The people couldn't keep up their end of the covenant. And that's exactly what we see here laid out by the prophet Jeremiah. So let's read this together. Uh, starting in, in, the call it verse 8b. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. I did not care for them, says the Lord. Now here would be a good point in case you're not familiar Let's stop for just a second and let's read what he's talking about. Let's read the institution of that old covenant because the words are real important. And and if if you're listening carefully, you're going to see, and if you don't catch it, I'm going to give it to you, a stark contrast between the way God words this old covenant with Israel and the new covenant that's spoken of here by the prophet Jeremiah. So I'm in Exodus chapter 19. I'm going to start in verse 3. This is is the covenant, the old covenant laid out before God to the people. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, This is what you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people, set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. A couple key words to look at. In verse 5 of what I just read you, Now then, if you will, if you will, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. And then towards the end, the people said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So if you will, and then this promise from the people that we will do all that the Lord has said. Well, What were some of the things the Lord had said? Um, Don't make graven images and worship those. Worship me alone. Don't, don't get into the messing around with all this pagan worship of the, the people around you. I've called you out for you to stand out as a light among the nations. Don't do that. Okay? And if you know the book of Exodus, right after, I mean, we don't get very far from all the Lord has spoken, we will do, to Moses goes back up on the mountain to talk with God. He's up there 40 days. So, you know, that's kind of a long time, but not long enough to have forgotten what God had just said, because when Moses came back down the mountain, what are we doing? Uh, Aaron has told everyone to give him their gold earrings, and he's fashioned a golden calf, and everyone's dancing and worshiping around the golden calf. Here, behold, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. And Moses comes down, I, you know, I hope there's video in heaven, man, because like, I, I want to see Moses' face, because the way the Bible describes it is just that Moses was fired up. Like, Moses was ready to split wigs when he came down off the mountain. Uh, and it's funny because he comes down to Aaron, like, Aaron, bro, like the first thing God told us not to do was this. And he's like, well, Moses, you know how the people are, man. They, they, They were all freaked out and said, we didn't know what happened to you. And then they wanted me to fashion a God. So, so, you know, we took all this gold. I threw it in the fire and this calf popped out when the description was very clear that Aaron took tools and formed the calf, right? So Aaron's like, you know, it just it happened, Moses. Right? So, we, so Aaron's lying, right? We're 40 days into the this brand new covenant we just cut. Yes, everything the Lord said, we will do. No, you won't. <laughs> and and this is a micro picture of the grand point, which is if you will keep the covenant. Yes, we will. No, that's that's why later Paul says the whole point, major point of the old covenant, was to lead everybody to this understanding. No, you won't. You can't. The only way this is going to work is if God does the whole thing. And that's the major difference that we see here in this new covenant language that, that the prophet Jeremiah prophesies, right? Instead of if you will, there is no if you will in here. There's also no response from the people that we will. What does it say? Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them from the hand, took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. You want a a quick way to summarize the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? If you will and I will. And again, I would say, just thinking about how clear this should have been, this is not... This is God, through the prophet Jeremiah, spelling out a principle we've, we've already seen. Because if you go back to Genesis 15, when God is working through this covenant agreement with Abraham, and he says, go get these animals and split them in half, and, and God shows up as this, as this like flaming pot. I don't know what all that's about. I don't know if anybody does, but that's the way he popped up this time. What happens, right? Because in, in, in that time, if we're going to cut a covenant between a lesser and a greater, so if God's there and Abraham's there, who's the lesser and who's the greater? Abraham's the lesser, God is the greater, right? If you were cutting a covenant with a king in this time, what, you, would, you would cut all these animals in pieces, you'd lay them out, there'd be a path in the middle, and, and basically the lesser of the two making the covenant would walk through the pieces of the cut-up animal, and in so doing, basically what they're saying is, if I don't keep my end of this covenant, let happen to me what happened to these animals, okay? And so what should have happened there? is Abraham should have walked through them pieces, making this promise to God, tear me up if I don't do what it is that I've agreed to do in obedience to you. And what happened in that story? Did Abraham walk through the pieces? No. God knocked him out, (laughs) right? Abraham took a nap. God himself passed through the pieces. And what do we see happen? Those animals dying, being being butchered, and their blood flowing on the ground, ultimately that did end up happening to God in order for the covenant to be kept. Jesus had what happened to those animals happen to him. His blood was shed for the atonement of sin, eternally, perfectly, forever. My point in bringing all that up is the whole I will that we see throughout Jeremiah, the whole idea that God was going to the finality of his covenant between him and man was going to have to be something that he secured, that he guaranteed. We saw that last week, that Jesus is the surety of a better covenant. He is the one that was going to have to do it because we can't guarantee our end. We can't do it. It was always going to be about the willingness of God to do everything that was going to be necessary in order for us to be in relationship with him. Something we should never, ever, ever, ever let ourselves become ungrateful for. That we do have a God willing to go through all that for us. I will over and over and over again. Now, there's this mention of better promises. This is not a, I would say this is not a uh, comprehensive Summary of the better promises we find in the new covenant, but there's a couple that pop out here that I think are worth mentioning as we finish up today, our time in Hebrews 8. I will call your attention to verse 10, first of all. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. This this points out a key differentiation between the old covenant. And the new covenant and the way God is relating to us and we are relating to Him, in the old covenant, Moses was caught up on the mountain and there were tablets of stone. There was a law written on the outside, the expectation being that the people would follow that law that was written down on the outside. And again, the terms of those covenant was uh, the terms of that covenant was, if you will obey, then I will do these things. And so think that the very function of that of those commands written down in that external place the agreement was okay if I follow those then God will bless me and I will be in relationship with him and so the the very thing we're always trying to tell you not to get pulled into as believers a works-based righteousness that 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 was that was what they were under and part of why God did that in that time was because the way we are wired, we were always going to struggle with that. We were always going to struggle with the idea that God, God will love me if I'm good. And don't try to tell me that none of you struggle with that today just because we've done the first eight chapters of Hebrews together, or you've been listening to the gospel preach here, however long you've been listening to it, because this is a perpetual and perennial issue in the hearts of men and women. Our hearts are idol factories, and we constantly are pulled back to this idea of a works-based righteousness because nothing else in this world works like grace. Nothing. There's nowhere else where I can do the crime and someone else is going to do the time, and that's okay. In every other sphere, we would call that injustice. In every other sphere, we would say that's wrong, that you did harm to someone, but now now someone else is going to pay your penalty. Someone you're like, well, I don't know. Think of somebody falsely accused of a murder and then pays the the ultimate price for that murder. What what happens in your heart as you think about that? And if nothing happens in your heart, then imagine it's you falsely accused of some heinous crime and falsely accused, you end up getting the death penalty. How are we feeling? Like, oh, that's okay. People make mistakes. No. Glad that didn't break. Ooh, see how hard it was for me to bend over right there. There's no chair in the tabernacle, but I might need one up here. You heard me. Wow. Okay. Thank you, Lord. If you're over 35, don't try a jumping axe kick. Just don't. Just stay on the ground. Amen. Nothing else works like that. Where the sin is ours... We have we have committed the infraction, and and it's it's even it's even hard. This is even worse than if because if if I was falsely accused of a crime and ended up getting the death penalty for it, at at least at least I'm not perfectly innocent. At least I, I've pro- I've done a lot of things in my life that were wrong. At least maybe the punishment doesn't fit the crime from a, from a kind of human legal standpoint. But at least it's not a perfect innocent person that's ending up catching. Uh, this 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 punishment they didn't deserve, but it, man, in, in the case of, of Christ, we have someone who never sinned, not once in thought, word, or deed. Being the one that steps in and is that perfect sacrificial lamb, atoning sacrifice. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't compute. That's why Martin Luther said we need the gospel beat into our heads. That's why um, no matter what book of the Bible we're working through, we're going to be consistently and constantly brought back to the idea of the goodness of Christ's gospel. But in this, what we're seeing is this facet where there was an external law, it had a purpose. If if we follow that external law, then uh, we will we will stand in the blessing of God. The difference now is he's saying, I will write it on their minds and I will write it on their hearts. You understand there is the, the point here is not that so so what what happens if I Let's say everything was the way it's, it was before, right? I would have someone would have to tell me what's on the tablets. I'd have to have some exposure to that uh, in order to be able to then decide whether I was going to obey it or not, and I believed it and all that. Today, what God has said, He's done. He's done this miracle. What He's done in His people now is that that very law which what was what was really the bottom line of the law the law was revealing to us who god is it was his character being given out to us so that we could live as image bearers of him which is what we were made to do from the beginning it's a, it's a return really in one sense it's a return to the way things were always supposed to be before sin busted the whole thing up and so you had this this external situation but the, what's happened now is that in our minds and hearts it's written the 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 the, the Bible talks about things being written upon the tablet of our hearts, and that's an incredible privilege because now what we have is not an external law that if we follow it, then we get to be in relationship with God. What we have is this internal law. God has what happens when you come to Christ is is, is not superficial. It, it It's a change all the way down to the core. These verses would also they would align with the verses in Ezekiel that say, I'm going to give you, you have a heart of stone, but I 'm going to give you a heart of flesh, okay So even here in Jeremiah is not the only place this was talked about. God is, what God has done in writing His law on the inside of us is, is first of all, now because we have the Holy Spirit, it, it changes it's not just, ooh, if I do those things, um, I'm going to get in trouble. It, 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 and it's not that it's not now. It's like, oh, I don't have to look at the stone tablets to to know that. It, it's not just a an awareness thing that God has done, but what He's done by writing it on our minds and on our hearts is is it's changed our desires. Have any of you ever, have you noticed, and there, there's probably a wide variance in this room of how long you've been walking with Jesus, how long it's been since he took out a heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. It's been a varying degree of time that, that you have been somebody that, the, that his law, his character is written upon your mind and your heart. But, but I, I, I would venture to guess that almost all of you can relate to the experience that I'm about to try to describe. For any of you, is there something... That was, that was sinful, that was actually destructive, that at one point in your life, you, you thought you enjoyed that thing, that now you look at it, and it's like, I, not only am I not gonna do that because I think God will be mad at me about it, I don't want it anymore at all. Like, my desire for that has now been replaced with a different desire. Has that been anybody's experience other than me? And for some of you, like I said, if you, but, Buckle up for this. If you're a newer follower of Jesus and you maybe only have a couple examples of that, there's, there, more is coming because that's part of what it looks like to be sanctified. That's part of what it looks like for you to be continually conformed into the image of Christ. It's not just about God's now giving you this ability to resist temptation, though that's part of it. It's also that he's changing even what you want to do and this internal law is not about, okay, well, now I have an internal law, and I better follow that, or else, I'm going to, or else God's not, not going to love me, or God's, uh, if, not, if I do it, then I'll be in God's favor. Now the whole motive of following the thing has changed, because in doing what he's done, God has shown, I, I do love you. I do accept you. You are mine, and now our obedience is born out of wanting to live up to what we already are as opposed to trying to prove that we are. I want to to obey God because I am his child. I want to obey God because he does love me. It's not that I want to obey God so I can become his child, or I'm going to obey God so that he will love me, and that changes everything. The root base of the motive changing in that way is, 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 is the most revolutionary thing I can possibly think of as it pertains to the human experience. And yet, each of us are still tempted in various ways. We have to be aware of this and honest about it. We are all, this, this is why you may, this is the main reason I would say to you, we still have a need to read the book of Hebrews today because many of you could have been tracking with us so far and you're like, yo, I don't care about the Old Testament priesthood, bro. I'm not worried about it. I'm not going to sacrifice any animals. I'm not trying to build a tabernacle, but we're eight chapters deep into convincing me not to do that. No, 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 you, but you don't understand. This is far greater than just talking about the specific temptation these believers had in this time, which was to go back into Judaism as an actual practice. This is about the temptation all of us have to move back into some form of a works-based righteousness. That temptation's never going away. We need all of the instruction. We need all of the, the proofs and convincing that comes from the book of Hebrews to help us as much as these believers then did. Because for us... It, it, for them, it, at least there was something tangible. It's like, okay, yes, I'm going to go back to the sacrificial system. Yes, I am going to um, go to the temple and I'm, I'm gonna have the priests slaughter an animal for me and I'm, I'm actually gonna go do those tactile things. It would, al- it would almost, be, it's easier for us to slip back into that because there is none of that. We, it's just, a, it's just a, a heart thing and a mind thing for us if we're not, if we're not guarding and being careful to remember The reason I obey the law of God written upon my heart is not so that people will accept me or God will accept me because God in Christ has already proven that I'm accepted. God in Christ has already proven that I'm loved. Now I get to live out of that. Now I'm just living up to what God has already said is true of me. I'm I'm not obeying to get loved. I'm obeying because I am loved. Man, to, to the degree you understand how absolutely revolutionary that idea is that that's going to be some of what determines how much joy you have in your in your life with christ and may it ever increase to the glory of god the other promise i want to point out to you is this um it's it's found in verse 12 for i will be merciful to their iniquities and i will remember their sins no more the whole idea of of the mercy of god uh, you know, that mercy seat, that Ark of the Covenant being kind of ground zero for God's presence, but there having to be this mercy seat. And again, it was always, it was pointing forward to this idea that if we were ever going to enjoy access to the presence of God fully and unfettered, it was going to be through his mercy that we were going to experience that. It's deep, friends, I'm trying to tell you. I gave you the quickest summary of all the tabernacle furnishings anybody's probably ever done. And I almost was like, man, I don't want to do it because I can't get any deeper, but I'm, I'm hopeful some of you will and then there'll be other occasions where we can get farther into it but this idea of the the mercy of God and they would remember their sins no more now I've taught I've heard this taught that they've misunderstood the meaning of this word remember it's not that it's not that God erases his memory that's not what remember their sins no more means what it means is it's 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 really almost the same thing as mercy. To remember your sins no more means not to hold it against you anymore. It's not that it's not that you know some angel's job in heaven is to hit God with the, like the Men in Black thing. You know every time, you know, every time someone becomes a believer, it's like, well, God, we got to erase, got to erase that guy's stuff. You know, uh, that that's not it. But the the point here is, and and honestly understanding it the way it truly is supposed to be understood makes it even more beautiful because it's not that God has really forgotten, but it's that there's a way in which literally fully and completely it is not held against you. It's not that the knowledge is not there that you sin. It's that because of Christ's sacrifice and because you are now before God made righteous through his grace and mercy because of faith, because of trusting in him, those sins are now not held to your account. They will be remembered no more. They will not be held against you. And friends, understanding this facet of how God deals with us, it doesn't, it doesn't just, it frees us at least two ways. I think the first and most obvious way that it brings freedom to us is, is that it frees us from guilt. It frees us from operating out of guilt. This idea that when we come to God through Christ, The mercy of God is applied to us. The grace of God is applied to us because we have met the requirement of righteousness, which is following all of the Old Testament commandments. Right, one person shook their head no in here. That was a test. No, it's faith. The requirement of righteousness is faith and trust in the sacrifice of Christ. When we meet that requirement, the mercy of God is poured out upon us and our sins are not accounted to us anymore. We are now seen as the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, because he deals with us that way. We no longer have to live with that crippling sense of guilt, that crippling sense of trying to prove to God or others that we have value and worth, or that we're not that bad. We don't have to live in that. I know all of us still do from time to time, but we don't have to. Freedom is is there for us, and part of what God is doing with us and growing us in Christ-likeness is increasing the freedom with which we operate in that lack of guilt. That doesn't mean we don't feel conviction. That doesn't mean, I mean, because that's, you know, you can also, you know, get to the point where you don't, what you think that means is I should never feel convicted. I'm just, it doesn't matter what I do. Everything's awesome all the time. That's not what it means. But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Though we are convicted, we are able to move in the truth of Christ's forgiveness and the mercy of God. And so it it frees us from the chains of guilt But this truth also, in a way we may not anticipate, frees us from the chains of bitterness. Because to understand how we've been forgiven absolutely should inform how it is we then deal with others. This is the purpose of the principle uh, and the parable Jesus gave about the wicked servant, right? That one servant owed the king the equivalent of a life's salary threw himself down, asked for mercy from the king. The king granted him mercy. That same guy that was just forgiven, all that, runs outside, grabs his buddy that owes him the equivalent of 10 bucks, and chokes him, and has him thrown in jail because he can't pay his debt. And what is Jesus' point? That ser- that, w- what is the name of the parable? The wicked servant. <laughs> because that guy had been forgiven like that, and could somehow, walking in that amount of mercy and grace and forgiveness, then not grant that to somebody else. And the proportions are even. The proportions are accurate if we all are honest with ourselves. We are all the wicked servant when it comes to what we have been forgiven of because we all come to a perfect God, a holy king looking to be absolved and have all of our sin atoned for, every one of our sins of thought, word, and deed for the entirety of our life. We are asking that king to forgive us for every one of them. And yet, how often do we still walk around chained to bitterness and unforgiveness, not able to come out and on an individual basis forgive one another? We can be free of the chains of guilt and the chains of bitterness. But when you operate in slavery to those things, it is is a really, really hard way to live. And it's something that God has never intended for us. And part of the fulfillment of the new covenant part of what the freedom god uh, and there's all kinds of other promises we could talk about all kinds of other freedoms but i'm just going to give you what came to the surface here freedom from guilt and freedom from bitterness all of it comes by the grace of god we have much to be thankful for friends amen will you pray with me father we come before you in the name of jesus thank you I thank you that Hebrews was written. I thank you that uh, even though the temple was going to be destroyed in 70 AD, and th- there, are, there is nobody trying to follow the, the Levitical priesthood right now. There is nobody trying to offer sacrifices in the way they were in the, in the tabernacle and temple. There are those waiting, hoping for another temple to be built so that they can, but there is, there is nobody operating under that system right now. And so somebody could look at the book of Hebrews and think, Ah, its primary warning is against something I don't even have to worry about. I'm not tempted towards that. God, help us, help us see these deeper principles. Help us understand that running back into that Old Testament sacrificial system was just one particular way people were tempted to disregard your grace and to not understand what has been offered to them, the mercy offered to them through Jesus Christ. There are so many ways we're tempted to loosen our grasp upon the grace and the mercy that you have given us through faith in Christ. There are so many ways we are tempted back into some kind of righteousness paradigm that has to do with if you will. But Lord, help us live in the freedom of I will. And that I will always being that it's coming from you. (laughs) Lord, when we are struggling with doubt, may we remember you said, I will. When we are struggling with condemnation, may we remember that you said, I will. When we're struggling with bitterness and unforgiveness, Lord, may we remember you said, I will. When we're struggling with temptation, Lord, may we remember you said, you said, I will. And so even when we can't see, we, when we don't understand how all of these promises are going to be fulfilled to perfection, may we remember, Lord, you said, I will. And may we, may we sit back down into that. May our hope rest in your I will. And Lord, may, may we respond to that. May we live out of that and lean into it. And may all of it be for your glory, for the good of your people, and the good of a world that needs to know you're worthy to be worshiped. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.